The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, on in your packet, a couple of things that I want to draw your attention to. I try to do every week if I think of it and I don't have just a mental lapse is on the bibliography page. I try to highlight at Bolden the sources that I used in or consulted at least in the assembly of this um, uh, document. And uh, one, a couple that I want to draw your attention to, uh, which I think are helpful. One is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Some of you have probably heard this. Some of you have it. Uh, that's great. As far as systematic theologies go, um, I think it's a good one. Uh, it's, it's written in pretty plain language, and if you've never had experience with a systematic theology, they can be really helpful. Uh, it's probably not something that you're just going to sit down and read like a novel. Uh, it's probably not quite like that. It's probably more something you're going to consult, um, you know, almost like a dictionary sort of thing. But it might say something like, uh, topic, Jesus, and then it would start at the beginning of what we could possibly think of about Jesus. What about his origins, and what about this and that? And it would go through everything that we know and catalog basically every verse of Scripture in relation to that and kind of explain a little bit along the way. So that can be, they can be really helpful. Just as a word, when we go into the book of Hebrews, there's going to be a lot of systematic theology that we're going to be visiting for uh, several years. So just kind of, we haven't probably dabbled too much into that. And some of you may think, I thought that's all we've been doing. <laughs> Maybe so. Uh, we've probably done much more biblical theology uh, of late, but we'll be doing a lot more systematic theology. So it might be good if you've got room in the budget or you kind of like buying books and things like that and you want to get one. Uh, that might be something that you might consider. There's another one down here, um, Martin or Oren Martin. Uh, which is a book called Bound for the Promised Land. Uh, it's not particularly on that one, though it is a good book. It is about this series called New Studies in Biblical Theology. Uh, I've recommended short studies in biblical theology before, and those are 100-page, uh, you know, very thin, very small, very easy to read, pretty easy to read anyway, books. They're helpful. If you, want, if you want to dip your toes into something like, okay, I want to go for the big leagues now, a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit stronger, a little bit harder to read, uh, those new studies in biblical theology, they've got, I mean, probably, I don't know, 50 now done. They're gray, they're paperbacks, and they're, they're considerably thicker, but they have a bunch of different topics. And they're, they're much more thorough, which also means they're going to be a lot deeper. So when you read them... You, you know, put your big boy pants on <laughs> as, you, as you read them because they're, they're, they're going to be a little bit uh, uh, more robust, I guess. Um, so a lot of that comes from places like this. And so uh, maybe if some of the things that I say tonight intrigue you, um, just ask me about where that came from and I'll, I'll tell you. Um, as we've talked over the last couple of weeks, the, fa the few things that we've discussed uh, last week, obviously we saw that uh, Jesus' parents are bringing him out into the open, and this is the first time Jesus has really come to the kind of the public, and that is in several ceremonies that take place. One is a circumcision um, that, that uh, eight days after Jesus is born. Another is um, the presentation for dedication of him at the temple. 
um, which would happen, in, coincide typically around the time the woman also comes for purification ritual. So both of those things happen sometime around 40 days, potentially, after uh, Jesus is born. And all of that, the, those ceremonies are kind of truncated into just sort of, sort of one scene that Luke presents to us. The boy was, you know, circumcised, and then Mary was dedicated, and, or Mary was purified and dedicated and all that. It kind of truncated all into one ceremony, but it's actually several different ceremonies that all take place in the one little couple of sentences that Luke gives us. But it, it demonstrates that Jesus is born into a family that are law-abiding Jews. They're pious. They are, uh, um, what's, what's the word, observing Jewish ritual. And he's born into a family that does that, which is particularly important when he's going to come onto the scene in his ministry and actually begin also himself fulfilling the law. Uh, it's important that he's born into a family that is also doing that. And some of the things we're going to see tonight, that will make sense. Um, there's also, we saw last week, some parallels that seem to be drawn between uh, what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is and some things that we've already seen in the Samuel narrative Namely, when Samuel comes to the temple and is presented to Eli and is there dedicated, and very, some very similar things are stated about Samuel and him being dedicated to the Lord and being given to the Lord and things like that by his mother, and also uh, the Lord speaking through Samuel. And we even get this little summary message at the end of two passages in Luke that line up or parallel with the same kind of thing that is said of Samuel. He grew in stature and wisdom in the sight of God and man. And that's stated in, uh, in two different ways in Luke. And it, it sort of parallels that narrative with Samuel, which triggers our thought process in here comes the new David, right? That's what the Samuel narrative is doing, is setting up the prophet who's then going to anoint King David. And so by bringing to mind the Samuel narrative, we're kind of seeing in Luke... Here comes the next King David, which we're going to see even more so tonight. So after that, we also saw the, there's two public testimonies that Luke gives. One is of Simeon, and the other is of Anna, or uh, actually pronounced Hannah in the text. And so uh, two public testimonies, Simeon and Hannah, and they highlight this crucial message concerning the coming of the Messiah, and that is that his ministry is going to reveal the true state of the hearts of all people. And what that's going to mean is that some people, in regards to this Messiah that's coming forward, some people are going to fall one way and some are going to fall the other. In other words, his ministry is going to be really one of judgment, in the sense that it's, it's going to divide people. There are some that are going to reject and some that are going to receive. And the ones that reject are going to be condemned for their rejection. And the ones that receive are going to be accepted. And so the message from Simeon and, and, and Anna is really, here it comes. This is it. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. The, the decision maker is now in the world. And all things are going to shake out based on what this guy does. And so it's a significant proclamation there to the people uh, in, in Israel that are, that are there to witness this. Um, so now we go into the text that we've got tonight, 
And we're going to be looking at, this is where things start to get a little bit more difficult for, for me anyway, not necessarily for you, but we've got four Gospels that on through to the end, we're, I'm going to try as best I can to kind of parallel them as closely as possible and kind of glean what we can uh, from each Gospel that contributes to the narrative. Well, really early on in Jesus' narrative, there's a lot of parallels, okay? So there's a lot of stories that are very similar, and so it's, it gets a little bit challenging, but just follow with me if you can. Um, Simeon, remember, he told uh, Mary when she came forward that Jesus would pierce even her soul. That he, he gave this little parenthetical statement. If you look there in Luke 2, uh, 35, he says, A sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So there's a, there's a word here from Simeon to Mary that says, hey, things are going to get real for you too. This is not just everybody else. You know, you're going to be the beneficiary of, of his ministry as well as your own heart is revealed. And so it's, you know, kind of stunning speed in the story at least that we get this a glimpse into at least part of the fulfillment of this when Jesus is accidentally left behind at the temple. This story is only told in Luke, and I find it uh, just a great little glimpse into Jesus' life and upbringing, so let's look at it. It's Luke 2, 41-52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you for days. I've been searching for you in great distress. And uh, I imagine she was probably crying and yelling at the same time. Uh, and he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So, What's pretty clear at the beginning, at least in this story, is Mary, well, first of all, Jesus knew his purpose. And it's obvious that, G that Mary and Joseph, in spite of having an angel come to them and tell them this is who he's going to be, and, well, there must be some significance to that, they, at some point, kind of lost track a little bit of what his purpose really is. And I think maybe, I don't know, I'm not, I, an angel's never appeared to me and told me that my child is, you know, going to be anything other than, you know, trouble. 
Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I can imagine, as most parents will attest, they grow up really fast, and you don't realize, like, you kind of turn around, and they're, you know, my oldest is 11 now, and, you know, you kind of turn around, and you're like, wow, you know, that's, where did the time go? And, uh, and so I, I can imagine that in Mary's eyes, there's, Jesus is still this little baby, and that she's got to protect, and, you know, nothing can happen to him, and things like this, and, you know, as things happen, you know, the fa- whole family, the caravan of Galileans are obviously traveling, they travel from far up north, and so they typically travel in groups, because it's a dangerous journey, and so they come to the temple, and when they leave, they leave in a big caravan of people that are all going to Galilee, people they know, people that are family, brothers, sisters, all kinds of things, and they assume Jesus is over there playing with his cousins, as they all do playing football along the way, and it looks, they look around, and they're like, well, where is he? As they settle down for the night, you know, to camp, and he's not there. And so they begin the trek all the way back to Jerusalem, another day back, and then they're probably searching for a day in and around Jerusalem until they find him there in the temple. And so you can imagine the fear that has flooded over them and the distress that, in their mind, he has, he has caused. What's interesting is she comes to him, and she says, your father and I were so worried about you, da, 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 you know? And he uses the term father too. But he and Mary both use the term father in two, talking about two different people. And so there is, a, there is a connection that Jesus at 12 years old is already making. And the people in the temple who are teaching are astounded that a kid this young, I mean, keep in mind, the bar mitzvah doesn't happen. I mean, this would be a modern day example, but... The, the, they don't become children of the covenant. In other words, they don't bear the responsibility of Jewish life until they're 13. So here is a kid one year younger than that, able to converse. And even when you become a 13-year-old, it's not as though you just all of a sudden have all this knowledge and you're welcome around the adults and you're debating at the dinner table or anything like that. You're still a child, but you are now responsible for the things that are here written down in the Word. And here is Jesus a year before that, and he's talking with the adults and asking them questions that perhaps, maybe questions they can't answer, questions that he is answering for them, or things like that. And if you know Jesus' ministry, he was known to stump people with his questions. And so, uh, you know, perhaps there's some of that going on. And, and the people around are stunned and amazed at what he's able to do at such a young age, no kid around is able to do this, and here he is. And so it seems that Mary is occupied with being a mom and looking after her baby, who she was told by an angel, you must care for this kid, you know, and, and so I'm sure she's stressed to the max as they're searching around for him and, you know, eventually find him in the temple. But when he says, look, I didn't you know that I would be doing my father's business? This is kind of a, maybe a, maybe a, pardon the expression, come to Jesus moment, <laughs> where, where she's beginning to kind of see like, oh, he's starting to come into his, his own. And, and so it, this passage and passages like these, when Jesus is sort of, uh, his, his uh, earthly existence is kind of opened a little bit to us, it can sort of raise some questions. Again, Grudem's systematic theology can help with some of these things, these questions that we have, but Jesus' childhood is likely to have been, in many respects, like that of other children of devout Jewish parents. A period of training, 
growth, development, and learning, especially about the faith. That that was largely what his upbringing is, is a period of training and growth and development and learning, especially about the faith. And so I, I think when we think about Jesus as a child, there's a tendency probably on our, our own part to go, well, he was God's son, so he didn't cry. He never wet his diaper. You know, he, he was the perfect kid. As he was walking around the house, his mom had to vacuum under the couch, and he was just like, you know, whoomp, and just raise the couch up from the floor. <laughs> she vacuum under there. Thanks, son. He puts it down, you know, and she's like, she's like, we're all out of wine around the table, and he's like, mm, you know, and it all co- turns into wine, you know, or whatever. And uh, I, I'm guessing no. That's not <laughs> exactly what was going on, that he's growing up, and he's learning and he's developing, and he's being trained, and it's really important as we look at the previous passage we talked about last week, that the parents that he's growing under are, are faithful Jews. Even Joseph, when he resigns to divorce Mary, it says about him that he is a, a pious man, he's a, he's a righteous man, he's a faithful man, and he was just going to divorce her quietly and not put her to open shame like he had every right to do. And so we know about her, his parents that they are training him in this way, and it seems as though God put him in that family for that reason, to be trained in that, in that capacity. So if we need a reminder of that, look at Philippians 2, 4-8. to It may shed a little bit of light on this passage. Let each of you not uh, only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, So he is humbling himself. He's becoming a child, and he's growing and, and not availing himself of all the things that are rightfully his. It's not as though when we see Jesus, he's not God-reduced. Okay? He's not reduced to anything. He is God-restrained. So he's intentionally not availing himself of all the things that are available to him. Um, so as Luke, 50, Luke 2.52 points out, I want to read that just, just as a reminder, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, so as it points out, Jesus had a human body, that is the phrase in stature, he grew up. He had a human mind, he grew up in wisdom, uh, so he started to know things, math, uh, philosophy, learns all kinds of different things, I'm sure. Uh, we also know that he had a distinct will, uh, Luke twenty two forty two. 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. There is a distinct will that he even has. And he learned how to be obedient. We see this in Hebrews 5, 8, which we'll be looking at in uh, four or five years, somewhere in there. Um, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Uh, So when when it comes to these passages like these, again, these these are harder things for us to grasp on the surface because it deals with the nature of Christ the nature of a, of a person we've, we've never seen before and will never see again except in him. And so what is it that we're looking at? In Jesus Christ, we see two distinct 
natures in one person. The nature of one who is truly man and the nature of one who is truly God. And again, this is not like anything you've seen before. It's not like anything you'll see since. It's only true of Him. But it helps us to understand the, especially passages that highlight how he grew to know things and learn things, where you say, well, didn't he already know those things? Because he's God's son, after all. And yes, well, the answer to that is yes, because he does have the nature of one who is truly God. But he also has the nature of one who is truly man. And, is, and as such, he grows to know and grows in wisdom. Now, your temptation is to go, what's that like? Well, how could you possibly answer that question? Right? What's that like? You, we can't. There's no way you could know that. What's it like to even think like another person? Right? What's it like to be behind the eyes of the person sitting next to you? I don't know. If we knew that, we probably wouldn't argue so much. Right? <laughs> but, but we don't. Right? So what is it like to be of one who has two distinct natures inside one person? Uh, so on the one hand, with respect to his human nature, he had limited knowledge. We see that in several passages in Scripture. On the other hand, Jesus clearly knew all things. So again, what we see in Christ is God restrained in that he is intentionally not availing himself of everything he could know because he says, I'm not, I'm not knowing that. That's not mine to know and I don't... I don't want to know that. Um, but at the same time, we also know he knows the inner thoughts of people's hearts and minds and things like that. So how is that true? Well, it can only be true if, he's, if there's two natures in one, one who is fully and truly God and one who is fully and truly man. All right. Um, so the inner workings of Christ's uh, simultaneous humanity and divinity, they're difficult for us to understand but the church has always affirmed that Jesus has had, had two wills, two centers of consciousness, and yet remained one person. We, the fancy term for this, as we talked about last week, if you were in building blocks, or my building block anyway, is the hypostatic union. Uh, two natures, one person, never confusing the two, nor separating them into two persons. Um, all right. A little dabble into systematic theology, and we made it. Look, you made it out alive. There it is. Um, let's go back to a couple of things that Luke is going to mention here in Luke 3.1, which we're going to read in just a second. Um, there, days after Herod dies, so we, we flash back all the way back to the birth of Christ or around the birth of Christ. Herod the Great is going to die somewhere around 4 B.C. or so. Days before he dies... He orders the execution of his son. His son's name was Antipater, uh, he, which is a fun name to say. Uh, but his, in his last will and testament, he um, ordered that Antipater be executed upon his death. And then his kingdom, which the kingdom was going to go to Antipater, but it, did, it obviously did not because he was executed. And uh, which you're thinking, what a dysfunctional family. I thought I had a dysfunctional family. Uh, you know, you've not seen anything until you see Herod's family. Um, and so what happened then as a result of the heir apparent being executed is the kingdom that he previously ruled, which was the entire Holy Lands, is now divided up amongst three sons. Okay? Against, amongst three of his sons. All right. So, the, so one, and, and listen... 
all of Herod's sons have Herod somewhere in their name. So I've tried to clean it up so we don't get confused. They, most of them married a sister or a niece or a cousin, and then it just gets really confusing. Or a sister-in-law, then it gets super confusing. And some of them then name their kids after them. So you're like, well, good luck figuring out which one this is. Okay, um, Antipas was to rule Galilee and Priya. I'm going to put up a map here in just a second because I know Shannon's going to want a map. All right, so uh, he was to rule Galilee and Perea as a tetrarch. Okay. His full brother, Archelaus, was to rule the lion's share of the land, which was Judea. That included Samaria, Edomia. That's, Edomia is Edom, or the area just to the east. Um, all right, so Archelaus is there, Judea. And then Philip was to be ruler over the area east and north of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, so I think this is probably the best little map that we could possibly get here. Um, so you can see, I have my, hang on, handy dandy laser pointer. Okay. Oh, okay, there it is. Oh, man. All right, Archelaus is red. All right, fine. Archelaus is red. Uh, Herod Antipas is green. So you see that Galilee, Perea, down here just to the right. Uh, and then uh, Herod Philip is up there in what is called Galanitis, uh, up there. And then the Decapolis which Jesus is going to do some ministry in, is a largely Gentile area, and it was sort of kind of free uh, roaming pastures and stuff like that. Um, so Archelaus gets the broad share here in the red, and then, uh, then you've got Herod Philip and Herod Antipas, okay? Or Antipas and Philip. Okay. Um, clear on that? It's divided up amongst three. Now, here's what happens, though. Antipas and Philip... We're just fine. They, in fact, they governed their areas for 42 and 37 years, respectively. So they are, they rule pretty well, as well as can be expected of a Herod. And, uh, and they build and they do all kinds of other things. And one's better than the other, but eh, it's probably not the biggest point. Archelaus, though, uh, had basically all of his father's defects of character, but none of his administrative and diplomatic ability. And he was so oppressive over the area that in 6 A.D., so that is probably some, uh, what, 12 or so years after Jesus' birth. Um, so probably about this time or close to it. Um, he was so oppressive that Augustus deposed him and sent him into exile for fear that the Jews would revolt. Now, you get a glimpse of this in the Bible when uh, in, uh, what is it, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23, where it says, as soon as I turn there, it's on the page 4, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he 
heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So Archelaus, his brutality is well known. They go back to the place where they were, which is in you know, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, that area. They go back into that land. That's ruled over by Archelaus. He's worse than his father in terms of the just craziness and his, his you know, over, overreaching and things like that. And so they're nervous, and the angel warns him in a dream, and so that's why he goes in, eventually lives in Nazareth, is because Archelaus is so bad. Well, eventually, obviously, Archelaus is deposed and sent into exile, and all of that is done by the emperor. So Judea then, and this is why this is also important, biblically speaking, Judea then is not handed over to any one person after that. So that big area that was in the red back there is no longer one of the Herods that's going to control. Now that area is going to be appointed to a governor who's going to rule over that area based on Caesar's direction. So basically the Roman government is going to say, is going to appoint a governor or a, uh, you'll hear him called procurator or various other terms that are a prefect that are given to him. Basically what a prefect is, a Roman prefect, is someone who has uh, the responsibility of collecting taxes for Rome and keeping the peace. So some sort of military presence or police presence to make sure that nobody revolts and then also collect taxes from them. We want their money and we want them to shut up. Basically is what it is. And so they appoint, so you know who the governor is during Jesus' time. You remember? What's his name? Is, is, what is it? Pilate. Pontius Pilate. So how is it that Pontius Pilate comes into control when the Herods had control? It's because he's an appointed governor. And uh, it was because Archelaus was deposed. So, uh, so this sets up sort of the Roman government. And you can see this in Luke 3.1. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and he reigns in Judea from like 26 to 36-ish, somewhere around there. So he's, he's a 10-year reign in between those two, those two years, 26 to 36. And uh, so we know when Jesus' ministry takes place because it's, it's within that time frame. Uh, and Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee, so Herod uh, Antipas is up there in Galilee, and his brother Philip is Tetrarch in the region of Ituria uh, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, which is out in West Texas. Um, so we've got all these governors all right, that, are, that are appointed, and Pilate is reigning over the area. This is 15 years into the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So that puts John the Baptist's call into ministry out of the wilderness, 29 AD. So when it comes to figuring out when Jesus' ministry was, when even his death was, it's going to be within a handful of years, right? going to be within maybe a couple of years. Right? We can really probably get it down pretty accurate. So, somewhere around 29 AD, God calls John from the wilderness to go about the land preaching repentance of sin, holy living, as a way of preparing one's heart for the coming Messiah. So I want us to read that in Luke uh, 3. We'll just read one of them. Luke 3, uh, 2-17. to 
Actually, you know what? Let's read the Matthew one. Matthew 3, 1 to 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan were going out to him, and they were, being, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, so John the Baptist's ministry begins with this really clear call to repentance. And this is probably one of the relatively few uh, stories in the Gospels where most of the Gospel writers point out the same thing or make nearly the same connection. Um, most of the time when you go through the Gospel stories, they're each telling the story and they're, they're wanting to draw your attention to a different aspect, right? But in, in this regard, in the regard of the call of John the Baptist, most all of them point to the exact same thing. And in Matthew's, you saw that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah in, his, in Isaiah's message. And you see that message in Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 5. Uh, I want to read that, because this is where things start to get a little bit deeper in, in terms of biblical theology, and I want to show you this connection, uh, which is, I, I think is a pretty uh, interesting thing that the gospel writers are doing. Or showing you. Isaiah 40, 1 to 5, it's on page 7. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay? So, all the Gospel writers are pointing back to this moment right here in saying, John the Baptist is the one who comes in fulfillment of this prophecy. 
Okay, let's back up for just a second. We talked, I talked about this briefly last week. Remember, Isaiah is divided much like the New and Old Testaments, right? Hopefully, that, maybe that stuck with you, okay? The first 39 chapters largely deal with Israel and their current situation, and it ends at the end of the 39th chapter with Israel being told they're going to be captured by Babylon, led out into captivity, and, and hey, that's how it's going to be. But 40 opens, and 40 to 66 is really the promise of what God's bigger intentions are for them. So you have the first 55, uh, from 40 to 55, telling you that there is a servant who is coming, who is going to redeem you, and he's going he's to bring you back. And then 56 to 66 is really beginning to build into the new kingdom that he's going to establish. And so when 39 closes, we're in darkness. When 40 opens, it opens with these words in 40 verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And, uh, and then here is the prophecy about John that is the one coming. A voice cries. Notice what he cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Where did John come from? Where was John called from? He was called from the wilderness. Okay? But there's, there's more to it than that. Um, Matthew's Gospel paints, a, a, I think, a complete picture from the beginning of Israel's history to its end, or goal, by the way he frames his genealogy of the Messiah in three balanced periods of 14 generations. Uh, 14 generations each. Okay? I want to show you this. Matthew 1.17. It's up here on the thing behind me. I'm going to... Um, so it says... All generations. Okay? Can everybody see that? Yep. Okay. Good. All generations from Abraham to David were how many? Fourteen. Fourteen generations. So we have Abraham to David, fourteen generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. Okay? The people go from Abraham to David, 14 generations. David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Okay, so Matthew's laying out there's some significance here in these 14 generations. Now, we should note Matthew leaves out three kings. So it's not an even 14 technically speaking. But what he's telling you is maybe just a slightly different argument. He knows you know how many generations are in between each, but he's pointing out something different here. Notice that the people are in Babylon, and he doesn't point to their release, does he? The release of the people from Babylon plays no significant value at all to Matthew which seems a little counterintuitive because that was a significant event in Israel's life as Cyrus comes in and releases them from captivity. 
Where do the people end up in Isaiah at the end of 39? They're in captivity. Babylon. Then there's a promise in 40. They're going to be released. Similar to the way Isaiah doesn't talk about exactly how that release is coming about. Here is Matthew saying, you've got, you go into Babylon, and then there's 14 generations until the Christ comes. They're not released from Babylon. They're still in Babylon. Okay? And then the Christ comes. Now, I want to move on to the next, the next slide here. Until the great day of redemption has dawned, Israel is still in her sins. In other words, she's still in need of rescue. The genealogy then says, is saying to Matthew's readers that the long story of Abraham's people will come to fulfillment in its seventh seven. All right, let's go back. I want to pause for just a second. You have, I'm going to back these up. Well, I don't know if I can. Okay, well, it is what it is. All right, so you have 14 generations. Now, what is the significance of the number seven? Number of completion. Um, what does it mean to a Jew when they see a seven? Is it, is it a significant thing to them? What, what does it mean to them? What is it? Yeah, it's a fulfillment of the work of God. Literally, God works everything almost in Israel's history in sevens, okay? Down to the week that they celebrate is seven. Um, so then the year of Jubilee, as Timothy points out, is seven sevens, right? The year of Jubilee is the release of all those in captive once they're in their seventh seven. Okay, you've got here 14 generations uh, to the deport to, to David from Abraham to David, you got fourteen generations from deportation uh, 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 from David to the deportation of Babylon. Fourteen generations from Babylon to Christ. How many sevens are in that? Six. What comes immediately after Matthew's genealogy? Anybody know? Matthew, 18, Matthew 1, 18-21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being, a, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The, the, the genealogy that Matthew is giving you at, in Matthew 1 ends with six sevens, essentially, right? Incidentally, well, I'm not even going to go into that just yet because that's another thing. Here, we'll talk about this in a second. So six sevens is the way it ends, the genealogy. The next passage is Jesus coming along and saving his people from their sins. In other words, being released from captivity as the seventh seven, essentially. I get it. You may not buy that. 
But here is John coming in in Matthew chapter 3 as one, as a voice, crying out in the, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But he's not just located in the wilderness. He's crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's crying out not just as his location is in the wilderness, he's crying out into the wilderness. Why would he be crying out into the wilderness? Why is it? I hear mumbles, but I don't hear answers. What would, why is it? Why would he be crying out into the wilderness? Because that's where the exiles are. Notice where John is. He's baptizing in the Jordan River. The Jordan River is facing, standing in the Jordan River, facing out east of the Jordan, where Babylon is. Crying out to the exiles, what is he crying out? Prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of what Isaiah is talking about as chapter 39 ends with them going out into exile. John the Baptist comes in to bring them back out of Israel, saying, comfort, comfort my people. Here is one coming. Make way the way of the Lord. And if you go back to what Isaiah is saying, he's saying all the valleys are going to be made low. In other words, the path from Babylon into the Promised Land is going to be a smooth one as Jesus leads all of those who are in captivity in the year of Jubilee out in now the seventh, seven generation, right? So he's, he's coming out, he's leading the exiles out of captivity um, and into the land. So while some people, some are, uh, as, he's, as he's preaching to them, some people are being baptized, and what are they doing as entrance into the Messiah's kingdom? They're confessing their sins, and they're being spiritually prepared to be led out of exile by the Messiah. But others, like the Pharisees and Sadducees that we see in the scene, are not repentant, and they are going to be, John tells them, permanently exiled into the fires of judgment. This is the reason the, 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 the terms that he uses is being cut down and thrown into the fire, permanently exiled into hell essentially, because their refusal to, re to enter the Messiah's kingdom in repentance. So look at Matthew 3, 7-10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These are the same kinds of terms that God used about the original exile in the Old Testament. Is you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Alright, so those who are prepared for the Messiah's coming are going to be led out of the soul's bondage to sin and they too will be burned with fire. However, this is going to be accompanied by the Holy Spirit and will accomplish a different purpose. That is to purge them of iniquity and gather them into his eternal barn. So look at what he says in chapter 3, 1, uh, 11 to 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, 
and will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So his, the, the fire that is, is brought to those who are repentant is one of burning off the impurities, burning off the dross, essentially. So all of this, uh, John coming into his ministry, being called into the, out into the wilderness, has a purpose, and that is to fulfill the, all the promises of the Old Testament, that John would be preaching to people who are in exile. The reality is that when the Jews came out of exile in Babylon, that was not exit from exile. And all of the New Testament writers are basically trying to demonstrate to the Jews the exile that you were in was an exile because of your idolatry and because of your sin. And you didn't stop being idolatrous when you got out of exile. You continue to be idolatrous because you're still in exile. The exile that, it, that God is concerned with is the spiritual exile of, him, of being in bondage to sin, and that's what you're entrapped. That's what you're ensnared by. And so here, is, here are the, the 14 generations or the, the six sixes that, or six sevens that have, that have come to you already and led you out into exile. And now the Messiah is coming in this year of Jubilee to lead those who are trapped in sin out of sin's captivity. And that's what he's coming to do. So the New Testament writers are being careful to say, here's the way this prophecy fulfilled and what Jesus' ministry is going to look like. It's going to be one that releases the captive, those, those whose soul is captive to sin free. Right? So it's, in, it's sort of anticipating even his death and resurrection. Questions? Either super clear or super muddy. <laughs> I never know which. <laughs> okay. All right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful for um, just the various beauties that we can find within the text. We can spend all of our time, see all of the many uh, facets of glory that are on display before us. Um, we see clear intention of the authors here, both the natural authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the supernatural author, the Holy Spirit, weaving these themes together uh, to, to paint for us a picture of Christ that is compelling and rich and is the unique fulfiller of all of the, your promises from the Old Testament. The one who alone is capable of delivering your people from the bondage of sin. The one alone who is capable of fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law. Christ alone. And showing us to him, showing him to us in all of his glory. We are so grateful for this testimony that has been handed down through the ages, that has been preserved by you through history that has been set before us as something we can study, translate even, into our own language, read, study, and appreciate. And we are grateful. I pray only that we would give our time and attention to it, day in and day out. So give us help as we do that, as we apply it to our own lives, as we think about what Christ has actually done for us in leading us, the captives, free from captivity. We are grateful 
and I pray that you would help us to apply and grow to appreciate Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.